Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for September 11th to 17th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Malcolm McMillan on the incredible tale of a man who had a three and a half foot iron bar blown through his head and lived to tell the tale. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. September 11th. In 1793, Philippe Pinel formally assumed the directorship of the Bisset Asylum in Paris. Pinel, it is said, had been drawn to psychiatry when a friend became mentally ill, ran away, and was killed by wolves. Pinel and his assistant, Jean-Baptiste Poussin, instituted the first modern humane care of mental patients at the Bisset and later at the Salpetriere Asylum. For September 12th, in 1934, Ivan Pavlov attacked Robert Yerkes and Wolfgang Kurler for their insight doctrines. The topic was the subject of three of Pavlov's famous Wednesday meetings. Pavlov ridiculed Kurler for asserting that apes were intelligent solely on the basis of evidence that they sit for a period of time without doing anything before successfully performing difficult tasks. And also for September 12th, in 1944, a major reorganization was approved that gave birth to the modern American Psychological Association. This involved a merger between the APA and the American Association for Applied Psychology, which established the current Council of Representatives and created the first 19 divisions. Robert Yerkes, John Anderson, Leonard Carmichael, and E.G. Boring devised the plan. The dues were raised to $15 and included subscriptions to the membership register, the American Psychologist, Psychological Bulletin, and Psychological Abstracts. For September 13th, in 1890, Volume 1 of William James's seminal textbook, Principles of Psychology, was published by Holt. For September 14th, in 1936, the first frontal lobotomy was performed in the United States and was carried out by Walter Freeman and James Watts of the George Washington University Hospital. Freeman became a nationwide advocate for the procedure, and by 1951, an estimated 18,608 lobotomies had been performed in the United States. Also for September 14th, in 1953, Alfred C. Kinsey's book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, was published, creating popular discussion equal to the 1948 publication of Kinsey's book on male sexual behavior. For September 15th, in 1906, the Vineland Laboratory was founded at the Training School for Backward and Feeble-Minded Children, later renamed the Vineland Training School in New Jersey. The evangelical eugenicist Henry H. Goddard was the laboratory's first director. The laboratory studied intelligence, retardation, and education. The infamous Calicac studies came from this laboratory. 
And also for September 15, 1925, the trustees of the University of Illinois approved the first sports psychology research laboratory in the United States. Coleman R. Griffiths, who later worked with the Chicago Cubs baseball team, directed the lab until 1932, when it was closed for a lack of funding. And finally, for September 17th, in 1904, Oskar Pfungst began his examination of Clever Hans, the horse supposedly endowed with human reasoning, reading, and mathematical abilities. Pfungst found that the horse's behavior was attributable to subtle, unintended physical cues from its owner. On Wednesday, September 13, 1848, at about 4.30 in the afternoon, a supervisor of a construction team on the Rutland and Burlington Railroad near Cavendish, Vermont, was tamping an explosive charge into a drill hole in the rock. The supervisor's name was Phineas Gage, and what happened next has become legendary in psychology and neuroscience textbooks. His tamping rod, a heavy iron bar some three and a half feet long, struck a spark which ignited the charge. The ensuing explosion turned the rod into a projectile, which struck Gage just below the cheek, passed upward through his brain, and came out the top of his head. Yet despite this devastating wound, Gage did not die. It seems he didn't even lose consciousness. He survived the injury and went on to live for another 12 years. Gage's story has been told and retold in journals and textbooks for over a century, yet the tellers of the story often seem to be more interested in conveying their own point of view than in getting the facts of this incredible tale right. To set us straight on the life of Phineas Gage, we have on the line Professor Malcolm McMillan of Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, who is the author of the book An Odd Kind of Fame, Stories of Phineas Gage, published by MIT Press in 2000. Professor McMillan, what sort of man was Phineas Gage? Where did he come from? And what do we know about his character prior to the accident? Well, we know a fair bit about him and where he came from, but we know very little about him as an individual in the sense of we don't know how, exactly how much education he had. He was born into a farming family of uh, Puritan descent, actually, who'd originally come over in the 1630s to uh, the Massachusetts area. Hmm. Uh, he would be, have been familiar with farm work, and in New Hampshire, which is where he grew up, uh, farming was often carried out in very rocky soil, so almost all farmers knew about explosives and how to handle them. Uh, we don't know what work he did prior to the first time we hear about him, which is when he is the foreman of a railway or railroad construction gang working just outside of Cavendish in uh, Vermont. It's more or less a uh, central uh, part of Vermont. Mm -hmm. Now, he was working as a foreman, and that probably meant that he was a subcontractor. That is, he recruited the members of the work gang. He allotted them their, their duties. He oversaw their work. He uh, arranged for them to be paid uh, and so on. In other words, he had a fairly superior supervisory function as well as the technical skills involved in deciding where to uh, set the explosive charges. The other thing that we know about him prior to the accident was that he was regarded by the company that employed him as the best 
for best and most efficient foreman in their uh, employment. So it sounds like he had a fairly responsible position and, and was a person who showed a fair bit of initiative in, it, in his own right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, c- could you describe then for us the accident itself and the treatment that, that Phineas received? How is it possible that he survived so devastating an injury? Yeah, uh, well, how he survived is still really a bit of a mystery. He was uh, uh, setting a charge. Now, that meant that he was packing down the powder uh, at the end of a drill hole, probably three or four, four foot deep, um, into which there would have been placed and uh, what was called a safety fuse. There was no detonators hadn't been invented at that time, and the explosive powder was a some kind of uh, gunpowder mixture, very probably. That would have been packed down uh, fairly lightly uh, with uh, some uh, iron rod generally, or perhaps a wooden rod, but in this case it was an iron rod. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but it was at the first stage when there was only the powder in the hole. Phineas was using his tamping iron, which I'll describe in a minute, to pack the charge down, and the iron struck the side of the rock, which is very hard, and um, struck a, a, created a spark which set light for powder, and that propelled the tamping iron uh, through his head. Now, the tamping iron's a small crowbar-like instrument, about three feet seven inches long, um, thirteen and a quarter pounds in weight and one and a quarter inches in diameter at the thicker end because at one end it tapered over about a foot to a diameter of about a quarter of an inch. So it had a uh, spear-like quality to it, if you like, so at least four or five times larger, that is longer, than uh, an average skull. Wow. So it's a, a, a massive thing. Well, it entered, uh, because, well, the way... Phineas was holding it. He, he had it with the pointed end toward him when the explosion took place, entered under the cheekbone, passed behind the eye and out through the top of his head, around about where the uh, coronal uh, suture meets the midline. We don't exactly know where it came out. And then it went through the air and landed some uh, 30 metres uh, behind him. The immediate effects were that he was knocked over. He may not have lost consciousness. That's not absolutely certain. But he he got up and, with the help of his gang, walked to an ox cart which was nearby, got himself into the cart, sat against the headboard, and was driven the three-quarters of a mile up to the inn in Cavendish where he, where he uh, resided, got out, sat down, on the veranda of the uh, inn and uh, talked to all of the bystanders and uh, his uh, gang and so on about what had happened. And when the uh, doctor from the next village turned up, uh, he'd been called in to to, uh, render assistance, Uh, Phineas looked up at him and said, Doctor, here is business enough for you. (laughs) Now, he told this doctor what had happened. The doctor didn't believe him. Uh, until he pointed to the slit in his cheek where the thing had gone through in. And, of course, it was obvious even uh, to Dr. Williams, that's the name of the doctor, 
uh, from sitting in his carriage that there was some sort of uh, pyramid-like structure on the top of uh, Phineas's head. That is, the bones had been pushed out uh, in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. The local doctor, who was Dr. John Martin Harlow, a very recent graduate from uh, medical school, was in the village, uh, the doctor in the village, possibly associated with the railroad. He turned up about an hour after the accident and they began to treat uh, Phineas. They were able to staunch the bleeding within about 24 hours uh, and they got one of the bones so well back into place that it's almost impossible when you examine the skull to see that it was ever misplaced. Well, now, the standard accounts of Gage's accident that one reads, uh, say, in textbooks, say that his personality and behavior changed dramatically afterwards, that he was emotionally labile and that he became a 'er ne'er-do-well and a drunk and and even sometimes that he performed in a Barnum freak show. But your research has shown that much of this is, well, at best, half true. Could you help us separate the wheat from the chaff here? What actually became of Gage in the years after the accident? Although we think of it as being a a massively important thing nowadays, particularly those of us in in psychology or the neurosciences, it barely rated uh, a mention in the local press of the time. What we have as primary sources are the two medical reports that John Martin Harlow wrote, one in 1848, published in the precursor to the New England Journal of Medicine, and the other, published in 1868, well after Phineas's death, published in the Proceedings of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Now, what Harlow says is that after he'd recovered, he exhibited himself with his bar in the larger cities of New England. Harlow says that he, one of the places that he visited to exhibit himself was Barnum's Museum, now, Barnum had a stationary museum in New York, and it wasn't entirely freak show, but it was a little bit like that. And that's where Phineas is supposed to have been. Now, there's no record in Barnum, no Barnum posters, no New York newspaper, no record in the New York Historical Society of Phineas having set the world on fire, so to speak, when he <laughs> went to New York. But that's where he was. Most people don't know these days about Barnum's museum, so they think Barnum, freak, Barnum, circus, therefore Phineas must have wandered around as a kind of freak show attraction in fairgrounds and the like uh, through, throughout New England. Right, and what about the, the, the reports of drunkenness and becoming a ne'er-do-well? Did he ever work again? Yeah, there's no contemporary report at all about him being a brawler or about him being a drunk and so on. The first uh, mention of uh, drunkenness is late in the 1800s, at least uh, 20 years after after Harlow's report. I'm speaking now in terms of 1890s. Right. Remember the accident took place in 1848. What we do know, however, from Harlow is that probably about the beginning of 1851, he went to work for an innkeeper in Dartmouth, New Hampshire, a man called Jonathan Currier. And it's entirely possible Phineas, who was skilled in, uh, as a farm boy in looking after animals and uh, riding horses and that sort of thing, probably um, be- uh, became skilled as a coach driver working for Currier. 
mean, we, can't, we don't know that, but we do know that about 18 months after he went to work for Courier, he was engaged by a man who was going to South America to found a coach line in Valparaiso, uh, would run between Valparaiso and Santiago as part of the expansion of that port following the uh, gold rush to uh, California. And Phineas stayed there for some time, uh, presu presumably, well, we do know that he was working as a coach driver, probably a stagecoach driver. Uh, that's one of the bits Jackson adds to the story. Um, and that uh, he became ill for some reason, and Harlow was never able to establish <clears throat> what it was that he suffered from. And in about 1859, he went to uh, San Francisco. His mother and brother-in-law and sister, having moved there as part of the immigration to California with the gold rushes, he went there and he took some months to recover. He got well enough, physically well enough, to commence work. He worked for farmers, or a farmer, in the area immediately south of San Francisco, Santa Clara County, and uh, he, he he started to have epileptic seizures, and it's at that point that his behaviour seems to have become disturbed and unsettled. He uh, found fault with the various employers that he had, and he'd give up work for this one and go and work for that one, and so on. The following year, in 1860, he uh, must have had some sort of premonition and he went home to San Francisco to his mother's place and he commenced a severe set of seizures that gradually became uh, continuous, a so-called status epilepticus, and he didn't recover from that and, and in fact died. Um, so the story of him wandering around, if anything, comes from this time after the uh, seizures began uh, toward the end of his life. It isn't a life dominated by an unwillingness to work, which is often represented as being unwilling to work or an inability to work because of his uh, tendency not to want to settle down. And it's also the case that he clearly looked after himself. He wasn't dependent upon anybody. Right. You know, he made money. He may not have spent it wisely, but he did manage to look after himself. And, you know, conclusions such as those that he... Dry, died in a drunken brawl or died of drunkenness and dissipation um, in a poorhouse or something like that. That's all uh, fabrication. That's a quite yes. That's a quite different picture than we're than we're often uh, presented with in um, in in textbook and popular oh, look, accounts. I, I think there's, there's one thing that <clears throat> that it is necessary to say, and that is that Harlow does say that he couldn't get his job back on the railroad because his personality had changed. And he gives a very vivid description uh, of that, which is often reproduced in, in textbooks. And it's undoubtedly accurate. But when you think about it, it must have been true in the first year or two after the accident and could not have been true for the rest of Phineas's life. Now, in your book, you argue that, the, that Gage's case has been revived repeatedly over the century and a half since his death, primarily to serve the ends of, of people whose main interest seems to have been advancing their own particular ideas about neuroscience rather than finding out the truth about Gage's injuries. Could you tell us about some of those, please? In 1848, when the first account of Phineas's accident took place, 
Um, Harlow didn't include any of the changes. So as far as you know, you could tell, Phineas was one of those cases with massive damage to the brain where there'd been little in the way of consequences. Now that suited the anti-localisationist tradition, which was mainly um, based around the work of the French physiologist Florent, and uh, which um, was the dominant medical view. The opposite point of view was the phrenological point of view, which came from the work of uh, Franz Joseph Gaul and uh, Caspar Spurzheim. They were the first person, to, first people to propose definite psychological functions being localised in the brain. They were ridiculed, for the most part, by the medical profession, although in some countries, for instance in Scotland, and particularly in New England, um, and in a number of New England medical schools, one of which Harlow attended, this phrenological doctrine was given a good deal of attention. The matter stayed there pretty much until the 1860s and 1870s, when the doctrine of localization received a boost through the work of Broker, who showed that uh, there was a language function in the left frontal lobes, and uh, the work of uh, Fritz and Hitzig in Germany and David Ferrier in particular in England. Ferrier, following Hitzig, did experimental work which showed that motor functions were also localised uh, on both sides of the brain. A French physiologist called Eugène Dupuis, Dupuis sorry, um, attacked the localisationist tradition using Phineas as his example. He said, look, if the tamping iron went through the areas that um, uh, Harlow and Bigelow say it went through, he should, he, Phineas, should have had uh, motor weakness on the right side and he should have lost his language function. Now, Ferrier, hearing this story, uh, Ferrier was one of the people whose work was being attacked, wrote to his colleagues or friends, acquaintances, in the United States, in the Boston area, and got the full story and made an absolutely devastating reply to Dupuy's uh, attack, saying, uh, showing, as far as he was concerned, that the camping iron had not injured the motor or the language areas. It had been uh, further forward than that. Well, um, in, the, in, in, in the 20th century, the lobotomists are going to claim him, and now one of the Damasios has claimed him as well, yes? Yeah, that's true. Now, the lobotomist's claim was, was not really uh, about localization. It was really just that if he could survive, that is, if he could live with that amount of injury to the brain, then... Uh, it was uh, possible to uh, um, carry out operations like lobotomy. With the uh, Damasios, you've got a slightly different picture because uh, he represents Gage's behaviour, particularly in being honest and not to be trusted um, than Gage ever was. The reconstruction by Damasio, incidentally, is, is a very interesting one. It's a computer-generated model of the skull, and uh, it has the uh, points of emergence of the tamping iron much further forward uh, and to the right than uh, the massive hole that was still left in the top of his head through which everybody else has always imagined the tamping iron um, 
uh, emerged. So what broader lessons do you think are to be learned from the Gage case about these sort of neatly packaged stories that we see repeated over and over again in textbooks and popular accounts in the history of psychology and the history of science, I guess, more broadly? Do, do you think that the, the Gage case is of a piece with, say, the story of the apple dropping on Newton's head? What, what do these tales seem to tell us? Why do they seem to be so um, widespread in history, do you think? I honestly don't know because, you know, you really need to start to look into the origins, if you like, origins and functions of scientific myths. Um, they do have a number of things in common, those stories. Um, all of those myths are simple and they have a simple explanation. And it would have been nice had Newton been sitting under the tree and an apple dropped on his head and he suddenly thought, well, maybe there is a force of gravity that holds everything together. Um, I think the, the other thing is, you know, how do these things get propagated? Well, I think, uh, for, for the most part, the textbook writers are lazy. They're also under enormous pressure to say the same kinds of things as are already in the textbooks, so that they have pressure from publishers as well as their own inertia, working to repeat stories rather than to go back to original sources. And hardly anybody wants to go back to original sources. And in the Gage case, of course, the original sources are hard to come by. That's why in my book I've had them reproduced in facsimile form. Well, it's a fascinating story. Thank you very much. We've been speaking to Professor Malcolm McMillan of Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. Professor McMillan is the author of the book An Odd Kind of Fame, Stories of Phineas Gage, published by MIT Press in 2000. Actually, my interview with Professor McMillan went on quite a bit longer than we had time for in the show. If you'd like to hear the full, wide-ranging interview with him, we will post it separately at the same place from which you downloaded this podcast. And now it's time for birthdays. For September 11th, in 1902, Alice Bryan was born. Bryan analyzed the role of women in psychology, becoming one of the first to focus on women's issues within the discipline and profession of psychology. She promoted the formation of the National Council of Women Psychologists in 1941. For September 13th, in 1866, Adolf Meyer was born. Meyer was the most prominent American psychiatrist of his time. He promoted a holistic approach to psychiatry, which he called psychobiology. He suggested the appropriateness of the term mental hygiene. And also for September 13th, not quite a birthday, but an important anniversary, in 1886, Sigmund Freud married Martha Bernays in Wandsbeck, Austria. For September 14th, in 1907, Solomon Ash was born. Ash is well known for his pioneering experimental studies of conformity. The Ash line judgment paradigm established a standard technique for studying factors influencing conformity. And finally, for September 16th, in 1885, Karen Horney was born. Horney's neo-Freudian personality theory emphasized the role of childhood strategies for the reduction of basic anxiety as a precursor to adult neurosis. Horney founded the American Institute for Psychoanalysis in 1941. Her major works included The Neurotic Personality of Our Time in 1937 and New Ways in Psychoanalysis in 1939.
And that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 